This is an ABC podcast. The History Listen. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley. Welcome to the program. If you heard the History Listen last week, you'll remember we followed producer Tom Murray on a journey to England to confront his childhood fears of a monstrous worm. Today, Tom continues his journey but returns home to Australia and discovers some uncanny connections to both the early settlers and Indigenous stories. A thousand years of worm slaying comes full circle. Here's The Monstrous Worm, part two, A Myth Migrates. In our first program, we looked at a folktale about a terrorist dragon worm that rampaged across the countryside of northeast England, eating cows and lambs and children. It certainly wasn't a vegetarian if it had children. One Sunday morning, Lampton went fishing in the weir. He catched a fish upon his hook. He thought it very queer. But its child eating was brought to a swift and bloody end by a gallant knight who returned from the Crusades to slay the beast. Or did he? In this week's program, we'll look at the colonial heritage woven into this awful story. I'll tell you about the worm. It sort of was half serpent. It was an oversized ale. Now Lampton felt in time to go and fight in foreign wars. He joined a band of knights that cared for night and used the sky. And off he went to Palestine, where queer things in the fell. And very soon forgot about the queer worm in the well. We'll also discover what these stories can tell us about our present times and about the process of encounter, both with other cultures and other beings. Half dragon. Massive, overgrown, bloated physical worm, like a, um, a, a worm that you get out of the ground. Just a great big fat long worm. And, I don't know, 20, 30 foot long? Huge eyes, huge teeth. Wish, lads, and your gods, I tell you about the wall. The monster is a warning figure. From the Latin monstrum, its meaning is to reveal. It represents the anxieties and struggles of the age. So it makes sense that periods of conflict and cultural turmoil are its natural historical habitat. My worm was a gift from my father who brought it to Australia when the family migrated here from England in the 1970s. He told terrifying bedtime stories of a small worm that grew enormous and began to eat livestock and misbehaving children. I was reminded of it years later when I began to hear of similar creatures in the stories of Australian First Nations people. And so now, more than 40 years since my father first planted the story, I'm returning to the River Weir, to the ancestral home of the worm in the northeast of England. I'm off in search of the monster and the many different forms this tale has taken. It could be described as a kind of pilgrimage, the settler Australian in search of an ancestral English worm. But as obscure as that sounds, it's an idea that others have had before. Yes, I have an Australian colonial worm hunting predecessor.
Adam Salton sauntered into the Empire Club in Sydney and found awaiting him a letter from his granduncle. This is the beginning of Bram Stoker's final novel, The Lair of the White Worm. Published in 1911, more than a decade after his famous Dracula. This version of the Lambton Worm story, set in the mid-19th century, is the weirdest of them all. The hero of the story is a rich Australian named Adam Salton, a veteran of the Australian frontier. Salton is ready to rescue Britain from its moral and imperial complacency, and he returns quickly to England after receiving a letter with a call to Worm Crusade. Adam Salton? It must be. You're the image of your father. You're not unlike him yourself, come to that. <laughs> Welcome to England, my boy. The real England. And at a trot, they travel into worm country. It's like an old manuscript, Frank. This landscape. Yeah. In a film version of Stoker's novel, who better than Hugh Grant to meet the colonial newcomer and explain the dangerous etymology of the worm? Well, you mustn't take the word worm too literally. It's an adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon virum, meaning dragon or snake. Gothic vorms, German verm, it's all the same word. No, the uh, common earthworm was not always the lowly creature it is today. But dragons are as nothing to the experienced Adam Salton. Uncle, you're looking at a bloke who's fought of a crocodile and come through a bushfire. Good Lord. The basic outline of Western European dragon stories is that a dangerous monster causes destructive chaos and a battle-hardened hero restores order. So it's interesting that Bram Stoker would have chosen a colonial Australian for the task. I asked Indigenous writer Kim Scott what he thought of Stoker's choice of protagonist. Uh, depending which strands of history you look at, I think there was some early West Australian colonists who proved themselves very adept at violence and killing, um, particularly of things uh, embedded or indigenous to that sense of place. So perhaps he had a good CV <laughs> or something similar. Adam Salton's colonial CV would have included its share of frontier violence. Now we hear a BBC version where Adam's sleuthing reveals something extraordinary about the worm. Are we saying... Are we saying this woman could have committed ten murders? God save us all. Little Mary almost died of fright before she was poisoned. She saw, and those other poor devils saw, what they thought was an apparition in a white gown chanting at the moon. Oh, we must stop my lady now. Call in the troopers, that's favourite. He means the police. Through laconic deduction, with great artistic licence from the author Stoker, they realise that the man-eating worm is actually the lovely Lady Arabella. Oh, but Lady Arabella? I mean, she's so beautiful. Yeah. And tough as a wallaby bitch, boss. I doubt some deep personal... To continue the story from Stoker's original 1911 text, here we have Adam Salton talking to Sir Nathaniel de Salas, an apparently wise old diplomat. Salton's describing what he feels he's up against. I never thought this fighting an antediluvian monster was such a complicated job. This one is a woman with all a woman's wisdom and wit, combined with the heartlessness of a coquette and the want of principle of a suffragette. That is so, but being of feminine species, she probably will overreach herself. Now, Adam, it strikes me that 
as we have to protect ourselves and others against feminine nature, our strong game will be to play our masculine against her feminine. <laughs> A century later, time hasn't been kind to this weird work. There's lashings of racism, fear of the suffragettes, and a celebration of colonial violence. <laughs> well, well, you must remember that this female has had thousands of years' experience in waiting. As she stands, she will beat us at that game. This is where Sultan's masculine colonial CV comes in very handy. There is always a quick way of settling differences of that kind. Even barbettes get occasionally blown up. The lair of the white worm. Gone. Some terrors lie too deep for dynamite, my love. In The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. So let's bid leave of Stoker's colonial angst and bravado and say goodbye to Adam Sultan, my colonial worm-slaying predecessor. Returning now to the story of John Lambton, who'd come back from the Crusades to slay a giant worm, grown from a strange fish. He'd once thrown down a well. There is still a sequel to this story. The witch had promised Lambton success only on one condition that he should slay the first living thing which met his sight after the victory. This is the local historian of the Durham area, Robert Surtees, writing in 1820. Lampton had thus directed his father to release his favourite greyhound, which was destined to be the sacrifice. On hearing of his son's success, however, the old chief was so overjoyed that he forgot the injunctions and ran himself with open arms to meet his son. Instead of committing a parricide, the conqueror again repaired to his advisor who pronounced, as the alternative to disobeying the original instructions, that no chief of the Lamptons should die in his bed for seven, or as some accounts say, for nine generations. It's a curious end to a tale of crusading. What does this detail add to a story of imperial conquest? and of masculine victory over feminine nature. This is anthropologist Jamie Tehrani. The Lambton worm could be a kind of metaphor for the perils of out-of-control male sexuality. So you have this boy who fishes out this worm, and the worm is this kind of rather sort of small, sort of pathetic little thing. But during his kind of adolescent and young adult adventures, it grows enormous. I mean, you can't really think of a more obviously phallic image than this kind of like worm growing to be this kind of enormous, dangerous, out of control thing. The worm also, in many of the folktale versions, threatens women and children. So this is toxic male sexuality that's run out of control that needs to be brought to heel. And that's what John Lampton has to do. I also think it's relevant that he has to kill his father, because I think that that sort of emphasizes that the real monster is, is a man. It sort of brings to mind ideas, and I'm now going to speculate even further, it brings to mind patterns of abuse, which we know kind of run in families, and that, you know, the way for him to control himself and to not continue any sort of, you know, cycle of abuse across generations is that he needs to kind of suppress his father. He needs to put his father, he needs to kill his father, he needs to get his father out of his mind. But because he can't bring himself to do that, 
this continues across generations. Now, as I say, this is a kind of very fanciful theory, but I think, you know, another joy of folktales and of these stories is that they lend themselves to all kinds of readings, and that helps them to remain relevant to people throughout the kind of ages. There's always been a notion of gaining control over chaos that humankind is interested in. So you go back right to the ancient Babylonians and you find stories about Tiamat and the slaying of Tiamat by Marduk. You have figures like Perseus slaying the sea monster and rescuing Andromeda. And you have um, the Lernian Hydra being slain. You have Hercules doing this sort of thing. And you get a lot of male culture figures achieving dominance over this unruly nature being. So part of this story is about an ongoing need for societies to feel that they're sort of in control of events. And the more instrumental societies become, the more they control their material environment, the more they generate these kind of stories of who should be running the world. Not these nature beings, but us, us men. That was anthropologist Veronica Strang. She's been inspired by Australian First Nations people to realise that dreaming stories of water serpents open new ways to think about other water beings, including those in British folktales. But she's not alone here. This is anthropologist Robert Layton. There's no doubt the Lambton Worm's a river dragon. As I think all the imagery of it, its movement, its slithery movement, and the idea of only being able to kill it when it's in the river. What do you mean by a water dragon? What, well, I've been working in Australia for the last decade. I'm very familiar with the idea that every river has a dragon attached to it. So that you, you, you very much see the Lambton Worm in terms of relationships to water bodies, like uh, dreaming serpents in Australia? Absolutely. Yes, yes. I think the rainbow serpent is part of, I'm not going to say the same tradition, but the same mode of thinking. In fact, if you look at some of the uh, rock paintings in the Kakadu area of the rainbow serpent, very similar to the way that the Chinese portray water dragons. So beings like the Lambton Worm, and it seems we're in the northeast of England, there's lots of these water beings, mm -hmm. that they're part of the same mode of thinking, to use your expression? I think so, yes. Probably independent origin, but nonetheless the, the kind of inherent power of the imagery attracts the idea of uh, dragons. Elders from a number of Australia's First Nations have explained to me stories of powerful serpentine ancestral figures. As I understand it, they're beings, both creative and destructive, who retain an important relationship to people and give form and life to the entire Australian continent. The song you're hearing is a Yongo Manukai, a song from northeast Arnhem Land about an ancestral serpent being who spits fire across the sky. I recorded it with elders who told how the serpent stood as a powerful corrective, a force to steer young people away from some of the more destructive aspects of Western culture and remind them of the power of their own law. Creation beings have also played a role in resisting colonialism. This is Barkindji man, Murray Butcher, telling a group of Barkindji school kids about an encounter involving the Nachi, which was the serpent being that created the river, now known on maps as the Darling, 
It's from an animated film with images and sound effects made by the school kids. Okay, this story, what we come down on the, down here at the steamers for, is a story about the Ngati and the paddle steamer. About how a steamer came, a paddle steamer came to end up at the, in the bottom of the river at the steamer's point here. I think it's an important story because what the story does, it ties in European history with Aboriginal history and it tries to marry um, those two histories together. I suppose in a European sense that the paddle steamer ran aground maybe because of a current or something like that. But in our beliefs, I believe that that that, ngat, that the paddle steamer upset the ngachi, and the and our ngachi got cranky, and he, that's when he pulled the barge down and he, and he sunk that steamer to let him know that he was angry. What anyway? What happened in the story was when the steamer was coming around the point here, it ran aground and it ran into the bank. And um, our old people said that it was the Ngachi that um, stopped the steam and made it run aground. It gives us an insight into the way our people looked and saw the world. This is writer and Noongar man, Kim Scott. The folly of thinking you can, someone can come, a stranger can come into a place and conquer it and superimpose rather than, with time, become themselves yet another unique manifestation of that spirit of place. So don't slay the worm in in your sort of phrasing. One is a manifestation of the spirit of place. That can't be conquered. That idea, that gives something other than um, victimhood as a place from which to speak. And and there's, there's a lot of complex politics surrounding this. I don't want to sound sort of glib or anything or naive. But I think that gives great agency to uh, Aboriginal people and is a way of positioning ourselves at the centre of a widening colony. And I think that's really important for me and perhaps for some other contemporary Aboriginal people to reach beyond the beginnings of colonisation and strengthen the connection to that. And I think more and more enlightened immigrant Australians are realising for their own sense of identity and belonging, the need to connect and strengthen their connection to their natural environment and to earlier long-standing culture that's been here. These ideas resonate for many of us coming to terms with the brutal history of colonisation and with the current period of mass migration, cultural anxiety and environmental collapse. Can Indigenous philosophies offer new ways of thinking through these crises? And what sort of paradigm shift would be required? I also wonder, how could this happen fairly, with what Yongo people call bala or junama galili, that is, with give and take, rather than just take? It was time to get back to my worm. I wanted to find the magical well that once nourished the great creature, the hill where it left its mark, and to see what people think of it all now. I wasn't sure to what extent indigenous philosophies or the new environmental humanities had infiltrated the North Biddick Social Club. But I was willing to return there, have a beer and find out. 
I can imagine if you lived around here at that time when this worm was Aye. would have been a scary thing. <laughs> Luckily, Aye. local yeah. ex-publican Jeff Mendham well, this is where was on hand to take me down to the well. The well is, right? See the water? It's swelling up from underneath. Yep. There's the oh. geese flying over. The geese. People here are proud of this worm. Oh, yes. Well, without a doubt. Without a doubt, Worm Hill and uh, the Lampen Worm is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. It's our local history, you know? And, uh, no, it's very, very good. Very, very good. remember being told the story of the lamp worm when I was very young, maybe four or five year old. It was just something you grew up with. So your mum or dad would have been telling you that story? My gran. Your gran? Yes. He'd get big teeth and get big gob and get big goggly eyes. That's the vision I've got of the lamp worm. It's green and it's scaly and it's got huge goggly eyes and uh, get big teeth. Yeah, we'd have to have big teeth if we could eat children. Now this fearful worm would often feed on calves and lambs and sheep and swallow little bairns alive when the Iliad don't asleep. It was part of the scary things, the worms coming for you. Don't go near the river or don't go down there because the worm will get you and if you misbehave, the worm will get you. Somebody would shout. The boogeyman. There's a ghost coming after you and then somebody else would shout. The lamp and worm's coming. And you used to run as fast as you possibly could. And you know when you're frightened and you're scared and you're little, you think you're running fast and really you're not. You're not running as fast as you think you want to. But have things changed? Is today's worm a less fearful thing? Is it instead a rare and wonderful creature? Eels come from one specific island once a year. 
and they make the, the, the way through the Mediterranean, the Bay of Biscay, and through the English Channel, and they go to the different rivers, and they travel across land and to breed. But there's only one specific island. Now, I think if this has been one of the toughest, well, it would have to be one of the toughest to make all that journey. And Sir John has caught it. I think that has been one of the toughest and biggest ails. But I think this might have been a one-off job where this certain specific ail has grown, you know, three, four, five, six times its size. Because you can't get kind of big ales. But it, in my eye, it had a, a dragon's head. So here's the strange philosophical journey I've made. As a child migrant, I feared the worm. But now as an adult returning here, I fear for it. What chance a great eel today? A critically endangered species that migrates 5,000 kilometres to the Sargasso Sea to breed, only to encounter a vast plastic catastrophe, the North Atlantic garbage patch. Poor old worm. But perhaps there's still hope. You're not angry. You're just lonely. Aren't you, dear? So, 150 years since the Lambton worm pantomime first laid the beast in gallons of Victorian stage blood, are we setting out a new kind of encounter story? Are we identifying with the worm? The Lambton worm is friends with the Loch Ness monster. Nobody will believe that. And you can travel with a tale to tell of all those years spent down the well. Well, who would have thought it? Not a monster on the rampage, but a lonely, frightened worm searching for its mate. Safe journey to Scotland, my friend. Goodbye. Goodbye. To me, the Lambton Worm story is a story of the strangeness of migrations and of settlers encountering foreign lands and then resisting its existential threats. It was told to me by my father and goes back generations as a story of frightening conflict with otherness. Exploring these many different worm and serpent stories has me thinking. I ask myself, are these nature beings daring us to confront damaging cultural behaviours and be kinder to people and things we might otherwise fear in nature? and in ourselves. My worm pilgrimage is coming to an end, and it's taken me on a fascinating journey. But I've noticed that my tellings of this story don't seem to scare my son, as my father's once did me. I asked him why that was. Because you're not scared right now. Me? Yeah, I don't think so. But are you scared? No, I'm not scared anymore. So I think that's why I'm not scared. Wish, lads, and your gobs. I tell you it's all an awful story. Wish, lads, and your gobs. And I'll tell you about the world. And that was the final episode of The Monstrous Worm, producer Tom Murray's journey back in time and place to put his demon worm to rest. Well, I hope he's done so. 
And if you miss the first program, you can find it on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Traditional music in the feature was performed by Paul Martin and Helen Barber. The supervising producer today was Jane Connors and the sound design was by Judy Rapley. And remember, if you have a comment about this or any of our stories, head to the History Listen on the RN homepage and scroll down to the comments tab. We really do take notice. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for your company. See you next week.